Hi, my name is Amy. The Old Testament reading this morning is found in Genesis 2, 23 to 24. The man said, This one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. The word of the Lord. My name is Adri, and the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5.21 through 22.25, Ephesians 6, 1, 4, 5, and 9. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. As for slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. As for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them, because you know that both you and your slaves have a master in heaven. He doesn't distinguish between people and the basics of status. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Etienne. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who rule the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it will be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servants. Whoever wants to be first among you will be your slave, just as the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. The Gospel of the Lord. Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Father, we come before you this morning and thank you that you sent your son not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away, to liberate us. To help us to learn and follow the way of Jesus, that we might serve you well in this world. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. If you're visiting with us again, we are absolutely delighted that you're here. This is the fifth Sunday after Easter or the fifth Sunday in the season that we call Easter Tide, as we think about the cascading effect of Jesus' resurrection in our lives and thinking about what it means to live as Easter people who've been brought back from the dead and into a new life. And we're in the midst of this series in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 called Living the Resurrection. It's exploring exactly that, exploring what it means to live the resurrection here and now as we wait for the resurrection to come. During the first week of the series, we talked about what it means to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we have to participate with God's renewal of the world. And then the week after that, we talked about what it means to no longer live as Gentiles, but to live as new people, to live in a new way. And then Pastor Glenn talked to us about what it means to live a life of love, 
living in love in the same way that Christ loves us. And then last week, Pastor Glenn shared with us a message about living in wisdom, recognizing that the entire world was ordered by God's wisdom, but it's been disordered by human folly and recognizing that it's being reordered by Jesus, then we're invited to participate in that. We're going to continue in that idea today, talking about Paul's summons to us to reorder our relationships around Jesus, to think about how we relate one to another in light of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. What does it mean to reorder our relationships? And I don't know about you, but the problem for me in thinking about this is, of course, is that human relationships involve humans. If we could eliminate that part, it would probably be a pretty easy message. We could just say, okay, we're fine. Let's just go ahead and go. But if we think about it, I think about the number of times that either we ourselves have said or we've heard somebody say, this would be better if it weren't for the people, right? Uh, my neighborhood would be better if it weren't for my neighbors. My work would be fantastic. I would love my work if it weren't for my boss or for my coworkers or for my clients or customers. I love the product. I love what I do. If it just didn't have to sell it to people, then the whole thing would just go so much better. Or we think about our schools, we think, oh, school would be awesome if it weren't for teachers and administrators. Unless you're a teacher or administrator, they think, oh, school would be awesome if it weren't for students or parents, whichever it happens to be in your given context. But of course, in those conversations, we are never the person or the people that are the problem. Right? There's always somebody else. Nobody says that when we are the boss or the coworker or the client. It's always somewhere else. There's a certain part of that that we recognize is funny because there's a, an exaggeration involved. And yet it's funny up until the point where it's not. It's funny up until the point where our human relationships actually become places of deep pain for us. They become less funny the closer that pain becomes to the intimate relationships in our lives. When those comments kind of start to hit home or they actually hit our homes and we think about the kinds of relationships that are most intimate in our lives and have the potential for bringing us either the greatest joy or the greatest harm. We think about life in our households. And this is not only true for us, but it was true in the first century as well, where they found the intimate relationships of a household as being something that was continually talked about. And so we find numerous passages in the New Testament that talk about the relationships amongst people in a home. It's not surprising that these things actually are probably given greater display since we don't know of a single early church that didn't meet in somebody's home. The church was actually gathering in somebody's household, and all of those relationships were on display with one another. And it'd be like, instead of us meeting in America, the beautiful park next week, we're going to meet at your house. And everyone can see all of the dynamics of all the things that happen in the context of our homes. And so it's not surprising that the New Testament has all of these passages. And yet, the passages in the New Testament about husbands and wives and parents and kids 
and slaves and masters are some of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. They have been misinterpreted and misused to justify abuse and to perpetuate injustice. They've been used in very harmful, horrible, and destructive ways. And there's a corresponding group that says, because of those things and because of what we read in those texts, they just seem antiquated and irrelevant for our modern world. And we've certainly moved beyond all of those things, so let's just forget about them. And yet I think both groups have failed to grasp the culture and the context that Paul is working with, and in doing so have actually missed Paul. And we've missed the revolutionary ideas that Paul is actually communicating to the church in Ephesus. And so this morning, we want to begin to try to unpack some of those things and catch what Paul's doing, recognizing that these passages do have a lot of emotion to them. And for some of us, they carry a lot of baggage, a lot of weight, a lot of hurt and pain. So we want to walk through them in a way that actually carries the kind of significance the passages have and recognizes the kind of things that have been done in these passages named that we need to speak out about and speak against. Amen? Amen. So one of the things we first have to recognize is that Paul is addressing pre-existing systems and structures that were predicated on the cultural norms of his day. Paul is not writing in isolation. He is writing in a very specific context to a very specific church in the Roman Empire in the first century. He's working with and talking about pre-existing systems and structures that were predicated on cultural norms. And the earliest Christians, the earliest church, were a despised and persecuted minority. They did not have the power to change these things directly. Even if they did, the Roman Empire was not a democracy. This was not how the Roman Empire worked. However, what Paul and the early church understood was that they should and could and actually did live in such radically different ways within those systems and structures, and that in doing so, they could actually partner with God to reorder the system from the inside. That what they could not change directly the things that we maybe can in a a given sort of time and culture that we live in, in a democracy, they could actually subvert indirectly by living such radically different lives within the systems and structures that it began to render those systems and structures irrelevant because of how they lived. And this, I think, is exactly what Paul is encouraging. He is taking a very common Greco-Roman household code and infusing it with the gospel. He's taking something very familiar and shining the light of Jesus on it in a way that begins to transform it. In a conversation with Pastor Glenn earlier this week, he said, is really what Paul is doing is he's teaching the church how to live in a new way in an old world. 
He's teaching the church how to live in a new way in an old world. See, household codes were common in the Greco-Roman world. They were very common from the time of Aristotle on. So from three or 400 BC on, we find a lot of ancient philosophers talking about the way a household should be ordered. What they believed was that the household was the foundation of the society, And so every household in some way should be like a micro version of that society. It should be the place where the vision and the values of that society are actually lived out and embodied and displayed for all to see. They should promote those things. Well, the Greco-Roman world and its vision and its values was primarily patriarchal. Males dominated the society. They ruled the society, so therefore, males should rule their households. Should be a miniature version of that. So they were instructed to rule over their wives and their children and their slaves. The male head of the household was given absolute authority, and wives and children and slaves were expected simply to submit and obey. They had very few, if any, rights within that given context and culture. So all the Greco-Roman household codes did was they taught adult males how to rule their homes, and they reminded everyone else of their inferior status and simply instructed them to act accordingly, to act according to their station in life. So when we look at Paul's codes, what we have to look for is what's different. We have to look for what's changed. We have to look for what's being transformed by the gospel, what's different because of Jesus. And thankfully, in looking at Paul's codes, we actually don't have to look very long. He opens up with an absolutely radical statement. He begins this whole section in talking about relationships within the house, and he says this. He says, submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Submit to each other out of respect for Christ, rather than customarily instructing wives and children and slaves to submit, he tells everyone, including the adult male head of the household, to voluntarily yield themselves to one another in love. This was an absolutely unprecedented idea in the ancient world. To encourage everyone to submit to one another was unheard of. And why does he do it? Out of respect for Christ. Paul calls everyone to mutual submission because of Jesus. Because Jesus is now Lord over all, every Christian household should become a micro version of his kingdom, of his vision and his values being put on display about the new world breaking in to the old world. So each household must be reordered to embody and promote the visions and values of Jesus. And our relationships must be repatterned around his example of self-giving, sacrificial love. This is an absolutely revolutionary idea for Paul. So he understood that for this transformation to happen, for households to be reordered, for the existing systems and structures of the world to be subverted, that those who were served should now serve like Christ. 
and those who served should now serve as if they're serving Christ. Those who were served should now serve like Christ, and those who served should now serve Christ himself. To voluntarily submit to one another in love is to live in a new way in an old world. To live in a new way. This is how Paul begins the whole discussion. And interestingly, I want to jump to the very end and see how Paul ends it to see how he frames this entire passage. In his very last statement, Paul says this. He says, Jesus doesn't distinguish between people on the basis of status. Jesus doesn't distinguish people on the basis of status. There were obviously status differences in the Greco-Roman world. There were those who were superior, and there were those who were inferior, and you couldn't do anything about it. It's just the way that it was. And the household codes surely assumed all of those things. They were built on that idea of distinction. But Paul claims that Jesus doesn't distinguish people this way. Jesus doesn't distinguish people the way that the world does. These categories exist in the old world, but in Jesus' kingdom, all of these distinctions have become irrelevant. They have become irrelevant because now we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all sons and daughters of the Most High King. We all now have brought onto equal standing and equal footing because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he's united us together in a new kind of family where we were all together as one. Sons and daughters brothers and sisters. And so now we live our lives with one another based on that reality rather than on the realities of old. We no longer base our treatment of people on education and career and socioeconomic status and race and gender and ethnicity. These things are no longer the basis of our treatment of one another. The basis of our treatment with one another is that we are all one in Christ. So Paul, that's what it means to live in a new way in an old world. So this is Paul's frame. He frames the entire discussion with a call to mutual submission and a claim of equal status. A call to mutual submission and a claim of equal status And everything he says in between has to be understood in that framework. If we come up with a reading of the text in between that suggests something other than mutual submission and equal status, we have misread Paul. It would be sort of like picking up a book and seeing on the front cover that it's about Abraham Lincoln, on the back cover that it's about Abraham Lincoln, and then telling someone that the entire book is about Christopher Columbus. We see and read within the framework that Paul provides. And so let's see how he unpacks these ideas. What we're going to do is we're going to start with what he says to those who had lower status or less power in the society. We're going to read all those texts together and then pull out a few things. And then we'll come back to what he says to those who had greater status or greater power according to the systems and structures of his world. So he says, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. 
A husband is the head of his wife like Christ is the head of the church. That is the savior of the body. So wives, submit to your husbands and everything like Christ submit, or like the church submits to Christ. And he says, as for children, obey your parents in the Lord because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached so that things will go well for you and you will live for a long time in the land. And he says, as for slaves, obey your human masters of fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Serve your owners enthusiastically as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings. You know that the Lord will reward every person who does what is right, whether that person is a slave or a free person. See, it's not surprising, given the culture and context, that Paul instructs wise children and slaves to submit or obey. What is surprising in Paul's treatment is that he doesn't demand it because the masters have a greater status and they have a lesser one. He doesn't demand it because they have an inferior status. Instead, he encourages it by associating it with worship and reward. He associates it with worship and reward. Paul redirects each group service from the person they're under to the Lord who is overall. He redirects service from the person that they are under to the Lord who is overall. He says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your masters with sincere devotion to Christ. For Paul, every act of service and submission and obedience to a person is a potential act of worship to Christ. Every act of service and obedience and submission to a person can become an act of worship to Jesus. The second thing he does is Paul also points each group to a reward that only Jesus can provide. Beyond the husband, beyond the parents, beyond the master, he points them to a reward that only Jesus can provide because Christ saves so that your life may be good and long in the land because the Lord will reward every person who does what is right. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, for he is the Lord over every authority, over every master, and he can provide what they can not. He redirects them to Christ and reminds them of the reward that Jesus has for them. Encourages them to a life of service, not because they're inferior, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus can provide. So now let's take a look at what Paul says to those who had a higher status or a higher degree of power in that society. Husbands, parents, and masters. Interesting, the Greek text actually says husbands, fathers, and masters, which in most Greco-Roman households would be the same person. Three groups for the other, really one person under the focus of Paul's other instructions. And then we're going to look at this a little bit differently. Instead of reading them all together, we'll look at each section and highlight a few things. So this is what he says. He says, as for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
That's how husbands ought to love their wives, in the same way as they do their own bodies. Anyone who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it, just like Christ does for the church because we are parts of his body. This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh or one body. Right from the very start, rather than teaching husbands to rule their wives, which is what it would a normal in a Greco-Roman household code to tell husbands to rule their wives, Paul teaches them instead to love their wives like Christ loved the church and like they loved themselves. He says they should completely give themselves up for their wives and care for them as if they're caring for their own body. And then at the very critical juncture in his argument, Paul quotes Genesis 2, 24. He points back to God's original design, God's original intent for marriage. And he says the two will become one. See, God's original design for marriage is not hierarchy, it's unity. God's original design for marriage is not hierarchy, it's unity. It's two becoming one, not one under another. It's two becoming one. It's the kind of unity that demonstrates exactly what God is like. And it's the kind of unity that Paul knows can only be achieved through mutual submission and equal status. By recognizing that male and female are created in the image of God. And that when we serve one another, when we submit to one another, we put on display what God is like. And God creates a mysterious unity between people that points to what God is like and points to the relationship between Christ and the church. He knows that this can only be achieved through reciprocal, self-giving, sacrificial love. So this is not the paradigm that I grew up with. I mean, think back a way that I heard people talk about marriage when I was a kid. There's two dominant images that seem to come up in every conversation when I heard people talk about marriage. The first one was referring to someone's spouse as the old ball and chain. In fact, my brother, thinking it would be funny, bought me a plastic ball and chain for my bachelor party. This was the framework that they had, that when you get married in some way, this is oppressive. The other conversation I heard was conversations about who wears the pants in the family. These are conversations and images about power and control and oppression and dominance. These are not conversations about love and submission and sacrifice and giving and unity. That's the conversation the New Testament has. It's a conversation about reordering our relationships around self-giving, sacrificial love that God may take two people and make them one and put himself on display for the whole world. If we compare actually the text, you can go ahead and clap. That's a, I keep going on. <laughs> if we think about this text in comparison to what Paul has to say about, to wives, Paul has substantially more to say to husbands. He has more to say to those who have more power according to the systems and structures of the world. If we can conclude anything from that, I think we can say this. Paul calls those who find themselves with power to go first and go further. 
Paul calls those with power to go first and go further. Why? Because this is exactly what Christ did for us, right? He loved us first before we ever loved him. And he went further than we could have ever imagined, humbling himself and taking on the very nature of a servant and going on to obedience even unto death for the sake of us. He went first and he went further. So when we find ourselves with power, we should do the same thing. Paul also, I think, says this because he recognizes that in order to reorder the systems and structures of the world that are so dominant in our mind, in order to teach people to live in a new way, in a new world, they have to completely reorder their understanding of power around the way that Christ uses it who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who willingly gave up power to serve and to put love on display. That's how we live in a new way in an old world, is by following the way of Jesus, by using power for the good of others rather than for the benefit of ourselves. Amen? And he goes on and he says, as for parents... Don't provoke your children to anger. That never happens. But raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. At first glance, like Paul's instructions here don't really seem that revolutionary. But at the time, Paul was among a very small minority of ancient writers who put any boundaries on parental discipline for the protection of children. He was one of the very few writers who put any boundary on parental discipline. Parents could do whatever they wanted to their children. And Paul begins to place boundaries. He's giving children's rights, children rights, and parents responsibility that they didn't previously have. This is what Paul is doing. He's also changing the content of parental discipline and instruction. Children are no longer to be taught how to embody the vision and values of the world. Instead, they are to be guided toward the Lord so they can be formed in His image and pattern their lives after Him. The really hard part about this for me is that when I think about discipline and instruction, most of my discipline and instruction for my children in my worst moments are not discipline and instruction about the Lord. They are discipline and instruction about me. about my vision and my values for what I want, for what would be easier and better for me in that moment. My instructions for them to obey are not because it will go long for them in the land. They learn how to listen to the voice of God and follow him with their lives. My encouragement for them to obey is because it'll make my day a little bit easier. Those are to grease the wheels of our family machine so we can get to the next place a little bit faster. Most of our discipline and instruction for our kids sometimes can be about us, about our vision and values. What we're called to do with our kids is to show them Jesus and point them to Jesus and teach them how to live and listen and love and follow Jesus, not simply to do the kinds of things that might make our life easier because that changes from day to day. It fluctuates so back and forth for so many of us. This is why for me, I find myself more and more often doing things like I had to do this morning, which is find my five-year-old and say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness because I spoke to her harshly 
because she wasn't doing what I wanted her to do in the time that I wanted to do it in. And rather than showing her the patience of Jesus, I pressed my agenda into her life and spoke to her harshly. And so I needed to find her and say, honey, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I wasn't teaching you about Jesus there. That was about me. And then he goes on and he says, as for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them because you know that both you and your slaves have a master in heaven. As he did with children, Paul places boundaries on masters for the protection of slaves. This did not exist in the ancient world. He is giving slaves rights and masters responsibilities that they did not previously have. And in doing so, he actually undermines the entire system and plants the seeds of the gospel in the midst of this situation that will eventually sprout and lead to slavery's abolishment. This is the direction that Paul is going. He's not authorizing slavery. He's recognizing a pre-existing system, planting the seeds of the gospel in it, and moving it to a place that recognizes the master, the true master who came to set people free. You want to see that fleshed out even more, read Philemon. Paul continues to press this. He does this by reminding masters that they too have become slaves of Jesus. The master in heaven who himself did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life to liberate all of us. Therefore, we should do likewise. We should order our lives around the service of others in order that they might be set free. This is Paul's revolutionary move in the midst of pre-existing situations and structures. So the question, of course, is now, what does that mean for us today? What is all of that stuff that has to do with first century household codes and what Paul is doing in Ephesus? What does that mean for us? Well, my guess is that we all still live in a world where there is differences in status and power. Where in all of our human relationships, we still find these things at play. The old world is alive and well. And we're still called like Paul calls the church in Ephesus, to learn what it means to live in a new way. So when we find ourselves in situations where we have greater status or we have greater power, then we should follow the way of Jesus and serve others with self-giving and sacrificial love. When we find ourselves in places of power, we have to ask ourselves, do I treat those who, in those relationships, do I treat those people the way that Jesus would treat me? Do I treat others how Jesus treats me? And when we find ourselves in situations of lower status or lower power in our world, then we too should redirect our service of, of others to the worship of Christ and ask ourselves, do I treat those how I would treat Jesus? Do I treat others how Jesus treats me? And do I treat others how I would treat Jesus? That's what it means to live in a new way in an old world.
As we reorder our relationships under Jesus, we come every week to this table. This place where we actually learn what, what Jesus does with power. Where we remind ourselves every week of what Jesus came to do. Of how he gave himself for us. This is where we remember the way of Jesus. Where we learn the way of Jesus. But it's also a place where we receive healing and forgiveness. It's also a place where we're reminded of that. And so if you find yourself this morning and you recognize that you have sat in a place of power and you have used that power to the benefit of yourself and at the expense of others, Jesus calls you today to repent, to stop it, to stop using power in that way. He invites you to come, to receive forgiveness, and to learn a new way to live. And that may mean that not only do you need to confess that to Jesus and ask his forgiveness, but you may need to confess it to others and ask for their forgiveness as well. And it may mean that you need to get some extra help to learn how to live differently so that you don't keep repeating the same patterns of the past. This is a place where you can find that forgiveness and find a new way of life in a community of people that want to help you learn how to live in a new way. And if you find yourself this morning in a place where, the, where people have used power in the way that has hurt you, that has abused you, that has crushed your heart and your soul, that has caused you to believe things about yourself that are not true, that have caused you to think that you are inferior in any way. This is a table of healing. It's a place where we come to Jesus who knows our wounds because he has them himself. We come to the table of the one who knows what it's like to be betrayed, who knows what it's like to be beaten, who knows what it's like to be spat on and cursed at and abused, who knows what it's like to suffer. And he says to you today, I know you, I see you, and I love you. And you are worth everything to me. And so despite what messages you may have heard, despite what it is that you may believe, you are loved. And this is a place where Jesus can come and enter into that pain with you and begin to bring you new life out of death. And that may mean that you need to tell somebody about what's going on. Or you need to tell somebody about what's happened. So that community of people can surround you with Christ's protection, with Christ's love, and Christ's help, and surround you and help you find whatever resources that you need so that Jesus can set you free and fill you with new life. Amen? And so we come as we do every week to this table, and we come to learn We come to receive forgiveness. We come to receive healing. 
But we come humbly. We come confessing our sins to him and one to another. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning.